Well, if you're just joining us today, we started a brand new sermon series for the fall last week on the book of Jonah. And uh, if you missed that first one, I encourage you to go back. It's up on our website. You can uh, listen to it and uh, kind of set the stage. Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to open uh, today at verse 10 of chapter 1 of uh, the book of Jonah. But first, I want to tell you about a surgeon. His name was Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane. And he was the chief surgeon at Summit Hospital in Kane, Pennsylvania. He had practiced his specialty for 37 years. And over the time, he came to question the use of general anesthetic. He thought that too many people were getting general anesthetic for even small surgeries. And he believed, he had a theory, that people would recover more quickly from surgery if they only had local anesthesia. Yet, no matter how convinced Dr. Kane was about his theory, he had one problem. He could never find a patient willing to undergo. (laughs) No one wanted to undergo the knife while they were awake. Everyone he talked to had the same fear. They didn't want to feel the pain of the scalpel while they were being operated on. After searching and searching, oh, stop, don't put up that picture. Don't put up that picture. (laughs) After searching and searching, he finally found a willing subject for an appendectomy. That's where you remove your appendix. It helped that it was a relatively common procedure. According to Dr. Kane's own records, during the practice, he had performed almost 4,000 of these things. Wow. It was almost second nature. The guy could do it. In his sleep, the patient was prepped, brought into the operating room. Local anesthesia was carefully administered. As he had always done, he cut into the right side of the abdomen, entered the body cavity. He tied off the blood vessels, found the appendix, and excised it, finished by sewing the incision back up. To his own credit, he had proved his theory correct. Throughout the surgery, the patient felt very little pain. In fact, the patient was up and walking around the next afternoon. It was remarkable. This was 1921 when people went in for, to get their appendix out. It usually was six to eight days in the hospital. It was a milestone in the world of medicine. However, what made it particularly noteworthy was that the doctor and the patient were the same person. Dr. Kane operated on himself. There's a picture of him operating on himself. Now, that is the real deal. If you have a theory and you believe in it so much, you're willing to do it on yourself. That's incredible. When I was looking at our passage today in the book of Jonah, it hit me, that is what God was doing. God was pulling people towards the kind of faith that I would describe as the real deal. God starts with the sailors on this ship. Throughout the book, we're going to see he is pulling Jonah the prophet towards this. And ultimately, all of the people in the city of Nineveh. All right, it's a journey. We're going to discover it today. Well, last week we began this book through the, uh, our journey through the book of Jonah. If you missed it, as I said, look it on the website. Just to quickly bring you up to speed, uh, God has commanded the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh, 
That's a leading city in the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah is supposed to go there, preach them a fire and brimstone sermon. they got to repent, turn around, come the other way, or God is going to allow disaster to fall on them. But Jonah personally cannot stand the thought of going to the sworn enemy of his people, those awful, violent, bloodthirsty Assyrians. Jonah is really, really fearful that he just might be successful, that his preaching, God might use it to turn those people around. That would be the worst possible thing in Jonah's mind if God showed these awful people mercy and forgiveness. As you can see, Jonah's character has a lot of transformation to go through in this book. So Jonah rebels. He says, absolutely not. I am not doing that. He picks a place the dead opposite direction of Nineveh, the city of Tarshish. And that's when God says, "Uh, nope, you can't run away from me. And so God allows this massive storm to come up. The captains and sailors know they are in massive trouble. They find Jonah down below decks having a deep, deep sleep. They wake him up. They say, what are you doing? Well, how can you sleep in the middle of this storm? We're about to die. They bring him up and they cast lots. That's kind of an ancient term for throwing dice. And it was a way through chance to figure out the answer to the question you wanted. So their question was, who's the cause of this? Which one of us is at fault? Why is this massive storm come on us? And God kind of takes over the little process and makes it point to Jonah. And they all go, all right, who are you? What are you doing? Where, what God do you serve? And that's when Jonah is forced to fess up. I serve Yahweh, the Almighty God, creator of land and the sea. All right, that brings us to verse 10. I encourage you to read along in your print Bible. Verses are also up on the screen. Jonah 1. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Well, as we learned last week, each country or region in the ancient world was thought to have its own god or goddesses. And it was generally thought that the power of that god kind of ended a little bit at the borders of that nation. Now these sailors come in contact with Yahweh, the Almighty God, who apparently isn't limited to the boundaries of any specific country or region. He is sovereign over everywhere on earth, whether it's on the land or the oceans. Now we understand their reaction in verse 10 when it says, this terrified them. They thought, "Uh uh-oh, we can't get away from this. This God is in control. 
Then they cried out, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. They decide ultimately to do as Jonah suggests. They are going to throw him overboard. But here's the big doubt in their mind. They can't be sure that it won't bring Yahweh's anger on them as well. They're willing to allow that Jonah is this rebellious prophet who's running the opposite way. He's, he's in rebellion against God. So they pray to Yahweh themselves, pleading with him to accept their role in Jonah's death. Douglas Stewart says this in his commentary, what they're afraid of is blood guilt. In the ancient Semitic world, people could not be put to death without a trial and a determination of guilt any more than that would be possible in modern times. The sailors already feared perishing from the storm. Now they must also fear perishing from sin. I've entitled this first point, First Level Faith, Fear. You know, fear is where some people start their journey of faith. Pretty much in total terror of God because they have been fully confronted by their own sin and evil and mistakes. They are desperate for help. This is our sailor friends on the ship. Now, I've talked to people over the years that have come to faith, and when they look back on their journey, they go, you know what started me on this journey was really, if I'm dead honest, it was fear. Uh, I knew a lady, uh, she grew up, and she was kind of a late teenager in the late 70s, early 80s, and all these movies came out, these Christian movies about the end of the world, the rapture, the tribulation, all these things, and, uh, and it scared her. It literally scared the hell right out of her. And she, she came to Christ out of fear. When I got to know her, you know, 15 years later, she said, you know, it was an interesting beginning. And now, obviously, I feel like I've grown, matured in my faith. And she goes, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's where I needed to start. But she goes, here's what I've learned since. That she goes, fear may start us on the road, but love is what keeps us going. And she says, it's been a journey for me to let that part of my faith journey, that fear go, and really learn to just rest in the love of Christ. And my love for Him has grown in response. And I would agree, fear isn't where we want to stay in our relationship. Now, I've also heard crazy stories of people that have done awful things, they've committed murders or something, and, it, and there almost is that sense, almost a holy fear, when they fully meet Christ and they're overwhelmed by His holiness and they realize their own sinfulness. So, I'll allow that maybe fear can be just that first level of faith, but that is not where we want to stay. We want to grow. And that's where the text takes us next, Jonah 1, 15 and 16. Then they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made value, vows to him. 
As we saw last week, every time you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your English translation, what stands behind that is the Hebrew name Yahweh, God's personal name. When Moses asked God, what's your name? He said, my name is Yahweh, the self-existent one. I am who I am. So pretty significant. These guys have moved from fear. Now they are worshiping God. They are offering a sacrifice to Him out of gratitude. Thankfulness. This is taking it to the next level. Now, I grew up uh, with a commercial fisherman from, with a, for a father. I've been in a couple of minor storms. And I've been out on the ocean, as many of you have, to know that storms don't just instantly stop. It's just not raging 30-foot high waves one second and flat calm the next. It takes a while for the sea to calm down. And, And sometimes you'll encounter waves that are actually the remnants of a storm that's been way out in the middle of the ocean. Seas don't immediately calm, but that's what happens here. And it's so instantaneous, the moment they throw Jonah in, that the sailors go, whoa, this is a full-out miracle. Yahweh is truly in charge of both the land and the sea. Now, it says in the text that they made a sacrifice. Now, if you kind of picture sacrifices in the ancient world, they usually took an animal, they killed the animal, they had a fire, and they sacrificed the animal. Sometimes it was grain that was uh, sacrificed. Uh, Often incense was involved. But generally, an animal was needed for sacrifice. But if you remember what happened when the storm started, all of The sailors freaked out. They said, we're going to drown. We have got to get our cargo off the ship. We've got to lighten the ship so the ship doesn't go down. So they threw everything overboard that they could have sacrificed. So when it says that, it's actually telling us they went to land. That sacrifice couldn't have been on the ship. They had nothing to make a sacrifice with. So that sacrifice was actually on land it's a big shock it's a big realization for these sailors they have grown up in whatever country we're not told but they they had faith or belief in their local god or goddess this is a whole new deal they are encountering yahweh the one true god i want to share with you this really insightful comment Uh, made by the French Christian thinker and author Jacques Ellul. This is what he says. He says, at this point, Jonah takes up the role of a scapegoat. And the sacrifice he makes saves the sailors. The sea calms down. They will not be drowned because of his fault. What counts is that this story points us to an infinitely vaster story and one which concerns us directly. What Jonah could not do, save us spiritually and eternally, is actually accomplished by Jesus. It is He who accepts total condemnation. It is solely because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that the sacrifice of Jonah avails and saves. Jacques Ellul is so right. It is because of Jesus and His work on the cross that Jonah's story And example has something to say to us. 
jumping down 2,700 years from Jonah's day to you and I sitting here today. You know, if we come to God with kind of that low-level fear, and we feel that in order for God to love us, we have to sacrifice our time, our treasure, talents, our relationships, just to make God happy, then we aren't truly living in the freedom of the good news of the gospel. I summarize it this way. We don't sacrifice to make Jesus love us. We sacrifice our time, our talents, our treasures, and our relationships because he loves us. And that difference makes all the difference in the world. One is a short-term faith. The other goes the distance, changes our lives here and now, also for eternity. If you're here this morning, maybe you're listening online, and you take an honest look at your own heart and say, oh man, when I look deep within, if I take an honest inventory of where I am, I'm either stuck at kind of that first level where I've, I've, just, I've come to faith out of fear and I'm still there, or maybe I'm a little bit better, maybe I'm like the sailors when they make this sacrifice out of gratitude, but I'm, I'm still there, I'm trying to make sacrifices to make God love me. I'm trying to earn His favor. Let me boldly say to you this morning, it, those may be necessary stages, but that's not where you want to live. It's not where you want to live out your faith day in, day out. To grow in love for Jesus, to flourish in this world as his representative, we need to move to a deeper place of faith, motivated not by fear, but motivated instead by his love for us and our love in response to that. In the final section of the sermon, I want us to take the jump from Jonah to Jesus that Jacques Elul pointed us towards. Jesus surprisingly actually has a fair bit to say about the prophet Jonah and what this short little book of four chapters points towards in God's big story of rescuing the human race from evil, sin, and death. We're going to pick it up in verse 17 of Jonah 1. And then make you flip really fast to Matthew chapter 12. Jonah 1.17 Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What a journey. Can't imagine what that was like. Matthew 12, the words of Jesus. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. It's a remarkable connection that Jesus makes from Jonah to himself. Bible scholars have a term for that. It's called typology. The type or a symbol is embedded in the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, and it's fulfilled in the second half of the Bible, the New Testament. So in this case, Jonah is in the belly of the whale or a fish, or whatever it was, 
It's a sign, a symbol of Jesus being in the tomb, buried for three days. Listen to what Bible scholar Brian Estelle says about this in his remarkable book, The Gospel According to Jonah. Jesus compares himself with Jonah in two respects. Jonah was entombed in the belly of the fish, and so Jesus will be entombed in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah was a preacher of repentance, No. And just as Jonah was a preacher of repentance to Nineveh, so one greater than Jonah has come to come preaching repentance as well, namely Jesus Christ. As Jonah and his preaching were assigned to the Ninevites, so Jesus and his preaching are assigned to the present generation. When you think of the book of Jonah, Jesus doesn't immediately pop to mind. But, according to Christ himself, we're actually supposed to make that connection. We are to see in this amazing little gem of a book, a bridge from the first half of the Bible to the second half of the Bible. I spent some time pondering this week why God would set things up like that. Why would God cause the Bible to be written that? Why would God cause salvation history to be like that? And two things jump out at me. By doing that, number one, it reminds us we are a part of God's big story. People have summarized God's big story as starting at creation. Then we have the fall where humanity rebels against God. And then ultimately we have redemption, God coming down in Christ to save us. And then in the end of history, restoration. Sometimes they use the word new creation. So the story goes from creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately lands at restoration. Now that's really important for you and I to hear in 2019. When it seems like our world is going so haywire, there's constant stories about terrorism, constant stories about environmental destruction, to the wonky and bizarre politics all around the world, it seems like this whole place is going down the tubes. But when we stop and we're reminded that God has a big story from creation to restoration, and we are in fact at one part of that, I don't know about you, but that gives me enormous confidence God is in control. He's got the big plan. Now we can actually see in Jesus' words three different parts of that story. Jesus refers to Jonah, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, where does that occur? That's after the fall, but it's before Christ. It's before redemption. Then we have Jesus himself, who he says is he's about to die. It's a prediction of his own death, that he's going to be in the tomb for three days. And then Jesus says the men of Nineveh will stand up at the very end at the final judgment And condemn this generation because they saw and experienced Jesus in the flesh. They saw him do miracles. They saw him bring people back to life. They heard him preach. They saw him do all these amazing things and they still didn't believe. Fascinating. You and I are part of God's big story. And we're not just these insignificant little people in little details. God cares about each and every one of us. Our stories fit into his story. All right, 
That's the first reason. I think God put these symbols or types in the Old Testament and allowed them to be fulfilled in Christ in the New. But I think there's a second reason. Anticipation and waiting makes it all the better when it happens. You know, Jonah isn't actually the only type in the first half of the Bible. God placed a number of significant signs and symbols that built anticipation until they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In the story of the Exodus, God uses Moses and Aaron and the ten plagues to free two million Hebrew slaves that were being brutally oppressed by the Egyptians. And God uses them to rescue him, or rescue the two million people. The tenth and final plague is called the Passover, and the angel of death comes to bring judgment. The Egyptians and Pharaoh had nine chances and they said no every time and finally God says okay here comes the final ultimate plague and God said to the the Hebrew slaves he said I want you to take a pure lamb a lamb whose wool is completely white and that's a symbol or a type of Jesus the ultimate sacrificial lamb that It's sinless. There's no flaws. There's nothing. Jesus was perfectly sinless. And it's amazing when Jesus dies on the cross, the Roman soldier looks at him dying and says, this man committed no sin. People knew Jesus wasn't hanging there for anything that he had done. He took the sin of the world upon himself. Then that lamb was instructed to be killed in the Exodus, and they said the the blood of that lamb needs to be painted on the doorposts of your houses. And when the angel of death comes over, he will pass over your house. That's what the Jewish people still celebrate today, the Passover. The moment when they were spared, freed from oppression and slavery. Pharaoh finally said, okay, you can go. That was perfectly fulfilled in Christ. John the Baptist, the guy God sent as a messenger to tell everyone Jesus was coming. The very first moment John meets Jesus, his words are, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So all over the Bible, God is placing these symbols or types, and then they're fulfilled in Christ. We know that kind of idea that anticipation and waiting makes it all the better when it actually happens. We know that from our own experience, don't we? When I grew up on the Sunshine Coast in the late 70s and all through the 80s, there was no McDonald's on the Sunshine Coast. There is now in the little town of Seashell. Uh, but in those days, there was no McDonald's. So all of us kids who grew up on the Sunshine Coast, we'd see these cool McDonald's ads on TV, and we'd be like, oh, if only we lived in Vancouver, and we could go. So I had these two cousins, Brent and Marcy, and they watched, remember the, the Shamrock Shake? Does McDonald's still make those? I don't know. They're essentially a milkshake with some like mint flavor dumped in, but they always bring it out at like St. Patrick's Day or whatever. So Brent and Marcy were just obsessed with the shamrock shake. And they would watch this ad like there. Finally, they were like pleading with their dad, my, my cousin Ron. They were like, Dad, next time you go to Vancouver, you have to take us to McDonald's. 
And finally, months later, they, he takes him and they get a shamrock shake and it was just like heaven came down. Oh! Now, I'm sure if you asked him today as adults, they'd go, oh, gross, no thank you. <laughs> but we instinctively kind of know this, don't we? That anticipation is the purest form of pleasure. God caused that entire story to happen to Jonah. His rebellion, the sailors, the trip to Nineveh, God caused it to happen for that time period. It was a big deal. It turned Jonah around. Well, we're not sure. We think it turned Jonah. We'll get there in in later sermons. But it certainly caused these sailors to find out who the one true God was and begin worshiping Him. And as we're going to see, it caused an entire city to repent and be saved. So it was good for its own day. But the fulfillment, the real deal of Jesus, billions of people have come to faith in Christ. Jesus, who himself endured three days in the tomb, re-emerged from death, the conqueror of sin, death, and evil. Jonah was revived when the whale spits him out onto the beach, and he kept living after that brush with death by drowning. But Jesus came out of the grave in the power of resurrection, a transformed body that is never again susceptible to sickness or disease or injury or death. Jesus emerged as the conquering Lord of glory and in so doing changed all of human history. So what leads you and I to have the kind of faith that is a real deal? We don't come to faith in Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord out of fear like those sailors. We don't come out of fear but rather because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what our hearts and our souls are actually longing for all the way along. A real deal faith is based on Jesus, the real deal. Amen? All right, we're going to invite our worship team back for the closing song. I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing our closing song. <laughs>